Shadow Talk is back. This week it's a major healthcare breach, so we have to call in the doctor. Richard Gold joins me, Rafael Amaro, to dissect the mammoth report into the attack against Singh Health, Singapore's largest group of healthcare organizations. In a major breach of patient confidentiality, over one and a half million patient records were stolen by an apparent APT group. But this was all so, so avoidable. We'll talk vulnerabilities, security awareness, and incidents response fails, and even how one employee cheekily tried to sell their insider knowledge to a competitor. All this on Shadow Talk. Today, we pick up where we left off and introducing, for the first time in 2019, we've got Dr. Richard Gold again. Hey, Richard, how are you? Very well, thanks. How are you doing, Rafa? All great. Excited for this first new podcast of the year. And today, we're going to discuss the attack against Singapore Health Services Private Limited. It's a bit of a mouthful, uh, also known as SingHealth. So for the purposes of today, we're going to refer to them as SingHealth. And this attack resulted in the theft of a patient database or a set of patient databases containing personal information on over 1.5 million individuals. So this included names, addresses, identity card numbers, gender information, race info, dates of birth. And to make matters worse, 159,000 patients in this data set also had additional medical data stolen, one of which was the Prime Minister of Singapore. Now, the attack occurred between August of 2017 and July of 2018. However, on the 10th of January, a report was released that detailed how the attack occurred and what the incident response process was. First things first, Richard, how did this happen? I know, I know you well enough to assume that this was not a dreaded zero-day exploit, as we're constantly told to fear. Am I right there? Surprisingly, you are completely right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, nailed it. It was the initial intrusion vector is actually quite an interesting one. So it looks like initial reports were that it was phishing. And the Seeing Health post-mortem report itself said that they were not able to actually nail down the initial vector, but they suspected it was phishing. There's been some discussion on Twitter, and I think that a pretty compelling hypothesis has been made that this was actually the, the work of an open source toolkit called Ruler, which is uh, an open source pen test tool built by the guys from SensePost, SensePost great, great little tool. And it was using a vulnerability that was patched. So yeah, no zero days here today, folks. It was an already known vulnerability that had a patch was available, but the patch was sadly not applied. It's a pretty cool little vector, actually. So it dates back from 2017, as you mentioned, and it allows you, as an attacker, to modify the Outlook homepage of somebody. So you can, if you have their credentials, so this was a valid account attack, so they had the credentials from some mechanism, unknown, and they were able to then log into the exchange infrastructure as that person and set their Outlook homepage to be a piece of malicious code, effectively. And that's why it looks like it's phishing because Outlook is then spawning some additional processes, but actually it's a fully remote attack conducted using Ruler. And do we know how long they managed to stay within 
the particular network for? Well, it looks like it was at least a year. So it was quite a long time. And what I think is quite interesting is that the attackers got in and then they lay dormant for several months before moving around. So they, maybe it was an opportunistic compromise or maybe they thought they would get some additional follow-on taskings, but they, they lay low. And then when the time came, they started to move around the network. I mean, just on the face of it, I think just the, the numbers we're talking about as well as the type of data, I think that's what's probably caused a lot of headlines as well. I mean, can you imagine all the different types of uses of this data? 159,000 medical records. That screams prime extortion material to me. I don't know about you, Richard. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So the report, and incidentally, should just mention that the postmortem report is absolutely fantastic. It's very, very detailed. I mean, you might even go so far as to say excruciatingly well detailed. You know, it's 400 plus pages. It's, it's, a, it's really incredible that they made this report public. Now, they say that the, quote, the prime minister's personal and outpatient medication data was specifically targeted and repeatedly accessed. Now, that for me is quite an interesting target. It doesn't seem to me an extortion target on the face of it, although it might be, um, but it certainly seems like it may have some political aspects to it. On the other hand, they also pulled you know, 1.5 million patient records in total. So that's also, you know, what are you gonna do with that? That's not just espionage. So there, you know, there could be multiple usages for this data as you alluded to. I mean, humor me, Richard, 1.5 million records on individuals, including sensitive medical records, potentially, we talked about the different facets of it, uh, dates of birth, identity card numbers, full names and addresses. How could you possibly monetize that or use that as an attacker? What are the different potential possibilities? So if you're talking about financial uh, side of this kind of data, of what you could do with it, then there are things like fraudulent tax returns, fraudulent loan applications, fraudulent credit card applications, all the things that you can do with this kind of data. Basically, you can authenticate as that person. I think that's what really is the value of that data. Now, that could be for something, you know, quite, um, you know, I wouldn't say innocuous, but something, you know, reasonably run-of-the-mill like a credit card application, or you could use it for, for example, um, then tracking where people have been, what they've been doing. If you could then combine this data with other data sets like travel records or uh, hotel stays that we've seen, for example, in the Marriott breach, that's pretty, pretty nice from a counterintelligence point of view. So I think there's quite an interesting overlap between sort of potential political or espionage uses of the data and then straight up financial fraud versions of the data. And yeah, you say the potential political espionage focused. The other thing you said was how the prime minister's data or records were, were repeatedly targeted. And then if we take one of the key findings of the report, if you just want to read the exact sum, that's probably a good place to start. One of them is that the attacker apparently had the characteristics of an APT group. What do you make of that? Well, it's very fashionable, and that's what everybody likes to say. However, I think that there's definitely truth in it. So when you go into the report and you look at the extent of the attack, it's quite interesting. So there's a number of different aspects to it. But let's stick with sort of one very important part to it, which is the accessing of the Citrix environment. 
Now, Citrix is a virtualization system, and it's basically used as a sort of thin client. So you, as a user, you log into your Citrix environment, and then you're, from that Citrix environment, you're then connecting to whatever backend systems, in this case, the medical data and the, the databases. So there's a, an application that you use in the Citrix environment, and then that talks to the backend database to you know, answer whatever questions you have. So that's, that's all pretty standard stuff. Uh, many corporations, many organizations have such an environment. Now, in this case, the attacker was able to gain, gain access to the Citrix environment through credential reuse. There was you know, weak credentials that were being used. The credentials were lying around in batch files. So it was easy for them to get hold of it, to have gotten hold of it from a number of different ways. But once they got hold of that environment, there were a number of different servers in this environment, and not all of them had the access that the attacker wanted. So the attacker tried a whole bunch of different ways to gain access to this database to be able to pull the records that they wanted. And I think this is really key for understanding that kind of tradecraft is the persistence. So these, this attacker had a goal now, or in this case, maybe a set of goals, you know, access the medical data of the prime minister and then, you know, take whatever else you could get while you're there. And they were clearly very motivated. So they tried a whole bunch of different things that didn't work. And they ended up moving around the environment quite a bit until they discovered the credentials that they needed. This in the report is referred to as the AA credentials. So the, the administrator credentials for this environment, the, the target environment. And then they found also then the server from which they could access the environment. So they had you know, two different pieces of the puzzle, the credentials and the server, and they were not in the same place. So the credentials were found somewhere else to where the server was that they needed to use. So they were able to move around the network. They, you know, the report also sort of casually mentions that they also had domain administrator access, but that interestingly enough was not really the target. They weren't just trying to get DA, they were trying to get access to this database. So they just kept on trying all these different things until they got access. And actually this, this all these different attempts is what alerted the administrators of the system that something suspicious was happening. So having said all that, I want you to put your security, actually, you never take it off, your security engineering hat on. <laughs> um, so yeah, if we've got listeners, they're security engineers, or they work in a, in a similar part of a business or organization, as you said, it's a very lengthy and detailed report. What are the main things they should be drawing out of this from, from that type of perspective? So there's a few things. And I think what I like with these reports and what I personally find to be very valuable is that there are, of course, the technical issues, but then also the process issues. And I think it's very worthwhile to pay careful attention to both. So you really just can't get away with doing one or the other. So on the technical side of things, we saw that, you know, the usual stuff, right? Known vulnerabilities were being exploited. Patches were available. They hadn't been applied standard. We've seen this so many times. The organization had pen tests conducted. The findings of the pen test were not addressed. The pen tests address things like lack of network segmentation, which is how the attackers were able to move laterally 
the also, for example, no 2FA to protect admin accounts or accounts in general. So once the attackers got hold of credentials, they were able to use them without any additional speed bumps. So patching your services and your, your software using 2FA where you can and segmenting your network to compartmentalize access, I think is the absolutely the, the sort of traditional technical recommendations that we would make from a security engineering point of view. Now, if we move on to the process issues, I think that's also fascinating because usually, you know, usually you don't get to have this kind of level of insight. Now, they, the report makes two, has two key findings. One of them is that the, the staff didn't have the cybersecurity awareness training resources to, and I'm quoting here, to appreciate the security implications of the findings and to respond effectively to the attack. So the report, quite rightly, in my opinion, calls out the staff for detecting, responding, you know, being aware, doing their job. They were, you know, they, they picked up the attacker activity, but they didn't understand that activity in the context of what APT attacks look like. So that was really, I think, quite sobering for me. You know, they, these guys did their job and they did, they did it well, but they just didn't have that kind of res resources and training to understand what they were dealing with. So the attack activity was detected was not appreciated fully. And then there was the, the second key finding, which is that the key personnel in quote, uh, IT security incident response and reporting fail to take appropriate, effective or timely action. And the report goes into quite a lot of detail about this and it is quite, yeah, it's quite scary. So the, the people who were supposed to be making the, the decisions didn't make decisions. And they, um, in Singapore, they have uh, the CSA, Cybersecurity Agency, government agency, maybe a bit like the NCSC here in the UK. And obviously something of this significance, you know, as you can imagine the prime minister's medical data being accessed should have been escalated to this agency, which has that you know, background in APT activity and responding appropriately. The, the personnel in question didn't know what really a, a security incident was. And they, you know, they made completely unrealistic demands that uh, you know, in order to consider it a security incident, they had to have 100% confirmation of malicious activities. And it had to be 100% you know, confirmed that this was going on. You know, and you're never 100% until it's too late, I suppose. And, the, and crucially, they were very reluctant to escalate because they were concerned that if it was a false alarm, then it would not reflect well on them. And I think so, that was really, uh, yeah, a really key point. So sorry, Rich, are these security personnel you're talking about or senior management for other, other sides of the business? Security management. So they were the people who were the sort of, they, 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 they detail it all in the, in the report, but the people who were supposed to be making the decisions about whether something should be a security incident, and they included the security, you know, the senior members of the security team. And yeah, I mean, talking about accountability and responsibility, it's, it seems to have stretched even beyond the security teams and departments as well. If we read reports, it says that multiple members of single management have been held accountable, um, including a large financial penalty looming on the organization against mm -hmm. five members of their senior management team, which also includes their CEO. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely is uh, an organizational, organization-wide problem. But I thought yeah. it was very interesting that they that the concern was that if they, you know, if they raised the alarm and then that turned out to be you know an, an alternative explanation that that would just be catastrophic. And you know, we talk about this on a very s- small level about like phishing, like when an employee receives a phishing email, they should feel comfortable to report it and say, hey guys, I've received this. I'm not sure quite what it is. Can you let me know? And you know, often that turns out to be uh, you know, a, a false positive, a false alarm. But you know, certainly our approach here is that that's just you know, not a problem. Like, yeah, no problem. That's yeah, you know, good that you're paying attention and that you're trying to spot things and you know, not, a, not a problem. And even if you know, somebody does fall for a phishing email, does submit credentials, does, have, uh, does fall prey to this kind of stuff, that that's not a problem. You know, the, the most important thing is that you tell people, you tell the security team as quickly as possible so that they can respond. And that fact that this kind of issues become at the level of the organization where the organization doesn't want to escalate something. Ooh, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't bode well. Yeah, we've seen that countless times with big breaches where PR teams will wait days before they even, not even PR teams, just customer service teams will take so it's an organizational decision, but they'll wait ages to even tell their customers that something has gone on purely, well, not always purely, but a lot of time just out of trying to save face. And that can happen on an individual level. You might feel embarrassed that you've been compromised, that you've fallen foul to a phishing attempt. But as you say, better to be safe and report it as soon as possible because then you can actually do something about it. Yeah, and especially when you're dealing with such sensitive information. I mean, what, you know, what set of problems would you rather have? That you know you have a few more false positives to respond to or that somebody knocks over the, you know, the prime minister's healthcare information and disappears with it. You know, who knows what was in that information? I mean, if you're an attacker, which you're looking for very specific information or you, you know, you felt that there was, um, for example, there was non-public information in there. Maybe this person had a medical condition that people didn't know about. I mean, this, you know, in terms of, you know, making disinformation campaigns or all this kind of stuff, it's, wow, you know, it's amazing. It's, it, it's an amazing data set as an attacker. So the, considering how important it is, it's worth a few extra false positives. Speaking of reporting, you just reminded me of something. So there's one particular nugget that you, you drew out and you highlighted to me, and that relates to the coding vulnerability in, in the medical database system. And there was an employee who discovered a method of exploiting that vulnerability, but maybe his reporting process wasn't all that traditional, was it, Rich? Yeah, that was a real eye-opener. I think I really you know, almost spilt my coffee when I was reading the report and I came to that part as it was not really mentioned too much elsewhere. So this guy who found a, an issue with the... Uh, Sunrise clinical product that was being used. Um, instead of uh, <laughs> escalating it to the management chain or reporting it to the vendor, actually went and reported it to a competitor of the uh, AllScript Sunrise clinical products called Epic. And Epic, you know, did the decent thing, <laughs> reply, went back to the company in question, to the management, and uh, then the guy was fired. But uh, 
that was a very, very, very surprising kind of insider move, I felt. And yeah, that, that you know, could have had all kinds of consequences. You know, did this person sell this information? Did they pass it on to somebody else? You know, who knows what happened as a result. But yeah, if somebody finds um, a vulnerability like that and then uh, immediately ships it to a competitor, it's a dangerous person to have in your organization, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, part of me, it is surprising. But then when you sit and think about it, is it really surprising that things like that go on? I mean, when I sat back and mulled it over for a bit, I was actually like, actually, probably a lot of insiders would do, would do something like that. Obviously, you hope your employees wouldn't, but surely that's the way a lot of uh, competitors learn about vulnerabilities in other people's products. Yeah, I really don't know, to be honest with you, because this is one of the few times where you really have that level of detail, where you actually have the email that the guy sent in the report, and you can see everything about what happened. So you, you may well be right. Um, we just don't get sight of it. But yeah, that's just a, a small tidbit from the report. It's probably not the main thing listeners should take away or readers. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's related, it's, it's, but it's not the, the real core of the, the technical and process failures which led to the successful attack, but uh, certainly is, is a concerning aspect to it. So as always, a reminder to check out research from Rich and the wider team at resources.digitalshadows.com. Also, as a New Year's resolution, why not recommend this podcast to a friend? You can review us on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice, and that will also help others find the show more easily. All right, it's that time to wrap up. Rich, as always, I mean, you've given us lots of things to consider here. I'd urge anyone interested to have a look at the report. You don't necessarily have to go through all of it. Uh, you can just read the exec sum. You can pick out certain sections that we've highlighted here. But Rich, what are your key takeaways from the report or the incident itself? Does it make us think about security in a, in a particular way that you want our listeners to be aware of? So I think from my side, it goes back to the fundamentals that we so often touch on on this podcast. There were technical issues that were not addressed. The organization knew about them, they weren't addressed, and the attacker took full advantage of them. The attacker used pretty standard APT tradecraft. They didn't have to rely on some kind of crazy O-Day. It was all pretty standard, you know, exploiting known vulnerabilities. But that being said, this attacker was particularly dangerous due to their persistence and they were really motivated and they used this motivation to keep on moving around in the environment, keep on trying different things until they got to where they want to be. Now, in, you know, on, the, on the other side, as well as the technical issues, there are also the process issues. And I think that's another sort of key takeaway for me is that if you don't have good processes for incident response and these processes aren't tested, then it's going to be very, very hard to respond to, you know, this kind of activity. And in this case, I feel that the organization should have known the sensitivity of the data that they, they access. I mean, they, in the report, they talk about how they have this VIP tag that you could apply and then they you know created reports that every day about who accessed the this kind of data so they had some kind of understanding of it but they didn't have that real commitment to securing the data which um they, sh they should have done and the report calls it out and says you know whilst the attacker was was good the attack was not inevitable 
there were plenty of opportunities to have picked up the attack. As they say, the attacker was stealthy, but not silent. And so there were plenty of opportunities for the attack to be detected, to be, and the attackers to be kicked out of the network. But yeah, sadly, that did not happen. Great. Thank you very much for that, Rich. Now, just a, a final reminder that we've got another version of Shadow Talk out as well. Last week, we brought you the first episode of the Weekly Intelligence Summary, hosted by Harrison on Riper. Join us again on Friday, where Harrison will be back with some more guests to discuss and digest the latest cybersecurity news from the week. Richard, as ever, thank you very much. A great way to kick off the year. Thanks. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us and listening. Have a great week.